Welcome to the podcast. This is Ilan Jerno. I'm delighted to be speaking today with Fleming Rose. He's the author of a new book, The Tyranny of Silence, How One Cartoon Ignited a Global Debate on the Future of Free Speech. Fleming Rose is known to many people as the editor of a newspaper in Denmark that published cartoons about Islam. And those cartoons followed, were followed by something that came to be known as the Cartoons Crisis. Welcome to the program. Really a pleasure. So I wanted to start with a simple question. What led you to commission the cartoons and then to decide to publish them? You know, some people uh, think that these cartoons came out of the blue, that uh, we just decided to publish some cartoons uh, depicting the prophet uh, to make a statement or uh, to provoke somebody or <clears throat> because of other reasons. But in fact, they didn't come out of the blue and they were published, um, you know, as a reaction to a sequence of, um, of, of incidences and events. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it, it all started in Denmark in uh, the middle of September 2005, when a children's writer um, went public uh, saying, you know, I'm writing a book about uh, the life of the prophet Muhammad but uh, I have problems finding an illustrator. And according to this author, uh, two illustrators turned down his offer to uh, illustrate his book. And the one who finally said yes uh, insisted on anonymity uh, due to fear for possible consequences. And, and that was a form of self-censorship. You do not want to, to uh, you know publish in your own name what you have uh, uh, drawn as an artist. Uh, and that story was on the front page of uh, my newspaper, and it was the front page on the front page of uh, other newspapers uh, in the middle of September 2005. And uh, as a follow-up to this story, we had a discussion uh, at my newspaper, and one reporter suggested uh, in order to find out if there really was self-censorship or not um, among people working, you know, in the field of culture in uh, Denmark. Why don't we approach illustrators, uh, cartoonists, and uh, ask them to draw the profit uh, and see how they react? And that idea ended on my table. Um, and so I, I wrote a letter to uh, all the members of Dan Denmark's Cartoonist Association, inviting them to draw the prophet as they see him, a very open invitation, and that's the reason why the cartoons, in fact, are so different. Um, and um, I received 12 cartoons. I'm curious, how many people did you approach? I approached, in fact, uh, 42 people, but I was told uh, in the middle of the process that, in fact, there were only 25 active members of this association. So, so about 50% replied. Mm -hmm. And uh, because we had an internal discussion whether this was enough in order to go on with the project, but, but when I was told that it was about 50%, we thought, you know, this is, uh, this is fine. Um, and, uh, and then <clears throat> we, in fact, hold the cartoons for about two weeks, because we had an internal discussion about, you know, whether it was okay because we just had this one source to the story, the, the children's writer who said that he couldn't find an illustrator. 
And uh, uh, while we were having this um, internal discussion, several things happened that convinced me and the other editors that we have to publish those cartoons. First, uh, in fact, the illustrator who insisted on an anonymity, the illustrator um, of the book, he, he acknowledged in public, gave an interview to a Danish newspaper in which he said, it's true that uh, I insisted on anonymity because I was afraid. And he referred to the fate of uh, Theo van Gogh, a Dutch filmmaker, who was killed on the streets of Amsterdam by a young offended Muslim in, uh, in November 2004. And he also referred to the fate of uh, Salman Rushdie, the Indian-born British writer who published the Satanic Verses in 1988 and was subjected to a fatwa by Ayatollah Khomeini and had to live in hiding for many years because of his uh, so-called... The, the because many Muslims were offended by some passages in that book. <clears throat> so that was, you know, we had a, con the confirm uh, the con uh, a confirmation of this fact. And then several things happened. Um, in, in London, uh, at the Tate Gallery, the big national museum in London, there was a retrospective exhibition by a very famous uh, British avant-gardist artist. His name is John Lefame. And he exhibited an installation called God is Great. And it's, it's, uh, it's a copy of the, the Bible, of the Talmud, and of the Quran, torn into pieces and layered in a piece of glass. And the museum decided to remove this piece of art from the exhibition without asking the artist and without asking the curator, uh, the person responsible for um, the exhibition. And uh, they did it because they were afraid of possible reactions uh, from uh, Muslims, even though the, the police didn't, you know, uh, warn, they didn't warn the museum and they didn't tell them, if you, if you go ahead with this exhibition, you will have trouble. So it was a clear example of self-censorship in the aftermath of the 7-7 bombings in July 2005 in, uh, in London. And there was a similar case uh, in Gothenburg, Sweden, the World Museum of Art uh, in Gothenburg, Sweden, uh, where an Algerian-born artist um, uh, exhibited a painting depicting, you know, a man and a, a male and a female, a man and a woman having sex, and on top of the uh, painting was the first verse from the Quran. And uh, the director of the museum, after complaints by Muslims' visitors or Muslims in Gothenburg, removed this painting without asking the artist and without asking the curator. And in fact, uh, this act on behalf of the director caused a counter-demonstration from an Iranian female artist who had fled uh, uh, you know, a theocracy, a dictatorship in Iran uh, because of religious uh, persecution, and she moved to Sweden, and she said, you know, you are now doing exactly the same things uh, that, that uh, was happening in the Iran that I fled. So I insist that you reinstate this uh, uh, painting, uh, which unfortunately never happened. So she was uh, demonstrating, demonstrating daily in front of the museum for, for several weeks, but nothing happened. <clears throat> so that was a second example. And then uh, Ayan Hirshi Ali, the uh, Somalia-born former Dutch pub uh, politician who is now residing in the U.S., 
um, she wrote a, um, a collection of essays about Islam, quite critical. And uh, in the Finnish edition of this book, uh, the publisher removed, uh, censored a sentence, um, you know, that they seemed may be offensive to Muslims, without asking Ayan. And, um, and uh, also several of the translators of this book in Europe also insisted on anonymity. They did not want to have their name published on the cover or uh, inside the book, that is, uh, which is usual in, uh, in, in European countries. So that was a third example of self-censorship. And then um, a Danish stand-up comedian gave an interview to my newspaper in which he said, you know, I have no problems uh, mocking the Bible in front of a camera, but I'm afraid of doing the same with the Quran. So he was making a clear difference bet between the way he would treat uh, Christianity when it comes to satire and the way he would treat uh, Islam. Uh, that was a fourth example. And uh, then um, the Danish prime minister was having a meeting with a group of Danish imams in the aftermath of the 7-7 bombings. Um, and in that meeting, two of the imams called on the prime minister to make his influence on the Danish press in order to get more positive coverage of Islam, which was basically a call for censorship. You call on, on the prime minister to use the tools of state power mm -hmm. in order to get a specific point of view into the press. And both of the imams said this public after the meeting. So, so within, a, within the course of uh, one or two weeks, you had several cases uh, all speaking to the same problem, uh, that is self-censorship when it comes to dealing uh, with Islam in the public space in Denmark and in some other European countries. So, so uh, we decided that this is a legitimate news story. Uh, you know, journalism is about, you know, you, you hear about a problem, you want to find out if, if it's true or not. And usually you would call people and they will tell you what they think about this and that. We just pursued another uh, path, um, basically following a, a classic journalistic uh, principle, don't tell, show it. So, so these artists were invited to show you know, uh, through the medium in which they work to express their uh, opinion, their relationship to this uh, problem. Uh, and I wrote a short text, uh, you know, laying out the, um, the background, referring to, you know, what I knew about the Soviet Union, that you could end up in prison for 10 years for telling a joke in Stalin's um, uh, Soviet Union. And that uh, this kind of intimidation leads to self-censorship and it's a slippery slope. And in this case, we didn't know for sure if this was true or not. Uh, but, uh, but, I mean, the events that followed, uh, I think, showed that we, we uh, you know, we really hit a hot spot. <laughs> I want to just break that <clears throat> apart a little. So there's two elements to the reaction. First, within Denmark, immediately after the publication... And then the the global scene, and on that I'm interested just to poke a little on. You you described it as people think of this as they came out of the blue, and you've explained mm -hmm. sort of the context. One of the things observing it from the outside 
it definitely seemed as if the lag time between the international reaction and the actual publication was, uh, to put it mildly, it was suspicious. So I'm curious about yeah. your perspective on that. So, so just starting with Denmark, what was the immediate reaction and then the follow-up? I mean, on the day of the publication, I received one phone call from a newspaper vendor outside Copenhagen, uh, and he complained. Uh, he said that had, there had been a conversation about this uh, at the mosque um, during the Friday prayer, and he didn't want to sell the newspaper anymore because of, uh, of, of our publication of those cartoons. But that was the only reaction that I received the first day in terms of complaint. I received other mails, in fact, you know, um, uh, praising the publication, you know, uh, but, but uh, I mean, I, I, I get these calls every now and then from readers who don't like what's in the newspapers. I, I, didn't, I didn't pay special notice. Mm -hmm. uh, but then within a week uh, or two, we heard that uh, imams had been meeting uh, and considering how to react. And one of the imams went public and gave a very angry interview to the newspaper where he demanded an apology. There was a demonstration in Copenhagen with about, you know, three to five thousand people with speeches. Um, there was a petition to the Minister of Culture. Um, uh, and, and then a, a, a very intense public debate started. And I, I basically debated these people, you know, in public venues, on TV, on radio, my newspaper never published so many letters to the editor uh, from uh, from Muslim citizens as during um, this time. Uh, so it was a it was it was a big story in Denmark, but it was not an international story. <clears throat> um, but then um, uh, the 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 Islamic society in Copenhagen, uh, where some of these imams uh, um, were based. Uh, they were very dissatisfied with the fact that they couldn't win the public debate. They couldn't convince uh, uh, the uh, the prosecutor general in Denmark to uh, to persecute to prosecutors. Um, couldn't convince you know other media to promise that they would not promise uh, publish these kind of cartoons anymore. Uh, and because they, 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 lost, they lost a debate uh, uh, where they, in fact, had access to all uh, media channels in Denmark. So it's not that they were locked out of the debate, quite the opposite. They had access to every media platform. And then they decided to take their case to, um, to their um, um, uh, Muslim... Uh, friends in uh, the Middle East, and they sent two delegations, one to Egypt and another one to Lebanon and Syria, in order to incite uh, the powers, uh, the authorities in those countries, and, and have their help in order to organize demonstrations in that part of the world. And, and they succeeded um, in doing that. Um, I think because uh, uh, there was a coincidence. I mean, their interests coincided with the interests of authorities in uh, in Egypt, the Palestinian authorities, Pakistan. Uh, you had an election coming up in Egypt in uh, November 2005, where the Muslim Brotherhood was challenging the Mubarak regime, and this was a, a gift from heaven 
to Mubarak. He could, you know, using this case and tell the voters in Egypt, uh, you know, I am the real defender of uh, Muslims and of Islam. So vote for me and not for the Muslim Brotherhood. And you had a similar similar case in uh, in the Palestinian territories, where in fact it was Fatah, the secular Palestinian movement, that used this case uh, because they were in in election against Hamas, the religious fanatics uh, among uh, the Palestinians. So just uh, if I can distill, so the the, re- the attempt within Denmark was to actively prevent the publication of this kind of material, and that failed, and then that shifted to the Middle East, and, and then they aligned with these regimes that are themselves, I mean, as you describe in your book, these are regimes that do not have anything close to freedom of speech. So it's sort of a, 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 connect, a, a confluence of interests, both in terms of their view of free speech and then their content. Exactly. But I think there is an irony here, Ilan, because, uh, I mean, there were also people in Denmark, uh, even influential um, uh, lawyers, who were calling for banning these kind of cartoons. And and I think the irony is that, in fact, this debate and this controversy was handled without violence precisely in countries where citizens do enjoy uh, the right to publish these kind of things, where, where citizens do enjoy free speech, while all the violence happened in countries where citizens do not enjoy free speech. So I think it's 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 counterproductive to uh, to insist that uh, we should follow follow in the footsteps of those countries where in fact violence erupted because of the publication of, of these cartoons in a faraway country. And when you say following the footsteps, so the way you describe the demands of these uh, imams and the, just the general uproar is that they're trying to elevate religious doctrine over Western freedoms. So it's it's a fundamental shift. Absolutely, and and uh, and they also quite successfully uh, raised this issue within the United Nations uh, Human Rights Commission in Geneva, and 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 this uh, so-called cartoon crisis has since uh, two thousand and six uh, uh, been a reference point for. Um, for the the organization of the Islamic uh, countries conference, I think it's 56 Muslim countries, and they have now added the support of countries like Russia and China, uh, even India, I think, uh, in order to um, you know promote what I would call a global blasphemy law. Uh, that is that it should be imperative uh, upon any country in the world to pass a law. That would uh, that would ban um, uh, these kind of uh, expressions, uh, and and of course they have not succeeded in the sense that uh, we have passed these kind of laws, but they have succeeded in the sense that they have been able to introduce into international human rights language the notion of defamation of religion as a kind of of violation, uh, you know, against uh, human rights. I want to get back to that, but just to dig a bit more into the reaction within Europe. So you mentioned people in Denmark, lawyers in Denmark, were advocating for um, not publishing this kind of material. I'm curious about the political reaction among leaders of European countries, because Europe is the birthplace of freedom of speech. And I I think there is a 
example, uh, speaking to the essence of this problem, um, uh, after the killing of, um, of, of Theo van Gogh in uh, 2005, and he was killed by a young offended Muslim who was uh, offended by, um, by a documentary uh, van Gogh did that focused on violence against women being justified with references to the Quran. And in the movie, these women um, are shown and they have, they have printed quotations from the Quran on their bodies. And, and uh, uh, after the killing of Theo van Gogh, the, the Minister of Justice in the Netherlands went on the record uh, saying that, uh, you know, if we have had laws banning what van Gogh said, he would still be alive. And I, I think that's an outrageous uh, statement. It's like, you know, blaming the victim, um, um, asking uh, a young woman who was raped, you know, why did you wear a short skirt at the discotheque Friday night? It was your own fault. Uh, but I think this kind of reasoning, unfortunately, is uh, pretty widespread on behalf of politicians who don't know how to um, how to handle a more multicultural multi ethnic and multi religious society and and they believe that if we put further limitations on speech, we will be able to save the social harmony and and to me it's it's counterintuitive uh, that uh, and and not logic that on the one hand you welcome more diversity when it comes to culture, ethnicity, and religion. But at the same time, you want to limit diversity when it comes to forms of expression. And, and I find it logical that if you, if you welcome more diversity in terms of culture, religion, and ethnicity, uh, uh, then uh, it will also be natural that there will be uh, more diversity when it comes to speech. And, and uh, um, you should not. Uh, limit diversity of speech when you welcome diversity of uh, culture, religion, and ethnicity. I want to just go back to something you said earlier in describing the article you wrote to accompany the cartoons back in 2005. You mentioned your experience as a journalist under the Soviet regime. So when you wrote the article, you were drawing on your experience of that time. I'm curious in looking back at the reactions uh, to the cartoons crisis, how does your view and experience of the Soviet totalitarian control of freedom of speech, or the absence of it, how does that impact your view of the, both the, the Muslim reaction and then the European reaction? No, I, th I, I think there are, there are many uh, similarities. There are also differences, but but to me, you know, I... I had been abroad from 1990 to 2004, and I've spent 14 years in, you know, the last two years of the Soviet Union, and then uh, uh, several years in uh, the, the new Russia, and I also spent time in the U.S., uh, in Washington, D.C., and I came back in 2004. And, um, um, you know, I, I, I was not part of this debate about immigration and integration until, until when, I, when I came home. And I'm myself married to an immigrant from the former Soviet Union. Um, <clears throat> so, so uh, I mean, it came as a big surprise to me that uh, there were all these calls for, uh, you know, uh, 
uh, uh, self-censorship. And it, it really reminded me, uh, although of course I will not make any comparison between the Soviet Union and Western Europe, but, but the psychological mechanism, you know, the fact that you can intimidate um, by, by threatening people and threaten them with severe consequences if they say something uh, was similar. Uh, although you would not end up in jail, but and and it was not you know so much uh, the authorities in Western Europe. It uh, it was more about uh, some groups who uh, who who would threaten and try to intimidate if uh, people were say were saying something they didn't like. But 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 uh, but to me it really um, uh, uh, rang a, a bell. And and uh, I had seen in the Soviet Union what self-censorship can do to a society. I mean, um, uh, in the Soviet Union, you did you did not have to apply the laws. I mean, there were a few dissidents. That's true, but but ninety nine percent of the population had internalized the kind of limitations that the authorities had imposed on society through intimidation. And f- after they have been, you know, um, persecuting uh, selected individuals, so you you did not have to apply the laws. People did not take to the streets and and protest uh, limitations that were imposed upon their their freedoms. Uh, and and um, my um, my colleague. Um, uh, um, a, a writer in the UK who wrote a book about um, about the time from the fatwa against uh, uh, Salman Rushdie in 1989 and until the so-called cartoon crisis. I think he put it very eloquently. He said, you know, um, we have internalized the fatwa against Rushdie. When you compare the reaction to uh, Salman Rushdie in 1989, where a lot of people in cultural life came forward and defended him, and the reaction to uh, the cartoons, where where I think uh, you could have wished that more people would uh, have stepped forward in support of the publication of the cartoons and defended their publication. I, I want to just pick up on that. So I'm not sure you know this, but when mm. the crisis broke up here in the U.S., the Ayn Rand Institute, uh, we decided we had to publish the cartoons, although we're not a newspaper or, or an outlet. But it was striking at the time how few publications here in the U.S. were willing to do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious about the that kind of solidarity in the name of free speech within Europe. So it was it was bigger in Europe than in the U.S. <laughs> um, in fact. Uh, I think uh, you know big newspapers in almost all European countries published one or more of uh, of the cartoons. Uh, although you know not everybody, um, but but uh, Die Welt in Germany, a big newspaper, um, uh, uh, big newspapers in Norway, uh, a big newspaper in the Netherlands. Um, uh, magazines in in France, but but uh, you could also have asked for more in 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 Europe. But but still, I, I it was it was far more than the US, where just very few newspapers, in fact, 
published uh, the cartoons and none of the big ones uh, did. And in fact, I, I discussed this with some of uh, the editors at some of these big new newspapers and, um, <clears throat> and they said, you know, that it had to do with uh, the fact that the United States had, had uh, tens of thousands of troops in the Muslim world and they didn't want to put them in danger. And I, I can understand that um, rational, but I think then you should be honest about it. Uh, and I think, uh, I mean, some of these newspapers try to come up with, with uh, you know, weird uh, or maybe uh, political correct um, explanations. Uh, we don't want to offend uh, uh, a, a, a very famous columnist in the U.S. Uh, you know, said to me, "We don't have to publish them because uh, we we can describe in words uh, what's in them." And then I said, "Okay, we also know uh, what George W. Bush looks like, so uh, we don't have to publish photographs every time there is a story in the paper about him. We can describe in words uh, what he looks like." So, so I think it was a, a way to, you know, to to try to explain it, um, uh, you know, for other reasons. When in fact the the real reason was fear, and and, and that's I, I I mean that's that's a very legitimate uh, feeling I think, and uh, but we should just be be honest about it and say you know we're not doing it because we are afraid for what might happen, so people know uh, the real reason. I'm curious about you, the issue of laws in Europe. Uh, you mentioned the, the attempts to push more restrictions and, and laws against defamation. So one thing I found uh, interesting in your analysis in the book is that, which I think will be controversial to many people, is that you come out against the existing laws that prohibit Holocaust denial. Uh, so I'm curious about yes. the thinking there and then how that ties in with the, the current mm -hmm. move to push for defamation of religion restrictions. Mm -hmm. I'm uh, happy you asked this question because that's, that's in fact one of the things I learned, uh, you know, writing the book. I didn't know this in advance. Well, I was against Holocaust denial laws, but I didn't know the exact background. But I, I just, it just happened that quite often I was confronted with the argument uh, against the cartoons, you know, people saying, we know what happened in Germany in the 20s and 30s. That is the Weimar Republic and the beginning of the Nazi regime leading to the Second World War and the Holocaust. Um, <clears throat> so I, I went back and, uh, you know, I read about the Weimar Republic and what actually happened. And to me, it's a very different story. Um, it turns out that you had hate speech laws on the books in Weimar, Germany. It was not, you know, unlimited freedom for the Nazis. Uh, um, uh, the editor-in-chief of uh, Der Stürmer, uh, Julius Streicher, he went to jail twice because of what he published, anti-Semitic uh, uh, statements in his magazine. His magazine was, in fact, confiscated, I think, or taken to court 36 times during the course of eight, eight years or so. Um, Josef Goebbels, uh, Hitler's uh, minister of propaganda, 
he uh, he was fined uh, several times for anti-Semitic statements against the vice police director of Berlin, uh, Bernhard Weiss, who was Jewish, and he lost all the cases, uh, Goebbels. So so uh, it, it it turns out that you in fact had hate speech laws, and they were applied to a certain degree uh, in Weimar Germany. And I think you cannot talk about about um, uh, uh, hate speech uh, as a problem of free speech when it comes to Nazi Germany because uh, from 1933 you did not have any freedom of expression in Germany. You just had, f- had uh, freedom of expression for the Nazis. So people with other views, they had, they had no right to challenge uh, Hitler and his ideology in the public. I mean, communists were put in jail. Uh, later, the Jews were uh, persecuted. So, so, so Nazi Germany, I think, doesn't count at all because it was a totalitarian di- dictatorship with no free speech. Um, I think the problem of Weimar Germany was uh, that you, in fact, had a weak state that was not able to defend fundamental rights of its citizens and among them uh, the right to free speech. Because if you said something critical of the Nazis, of the communists, you could get killed. I mean, uh, during the first three years of the Weimar Republic, I think they had 400 um, uh, political murders, um, uh, you know, on people of the radical left and the radical right. So, so, uh, so it was not about too much free speech. It was about a state that was not able to defend the right to free speech uh, uh, for its citizens. Um, and when it comes to uh, the Holocaust uh, denial uh, laws, I was very surprised when I found out that the vast majority of these laws were passed after the fall of the Berlin Wall. You know, I, I thought that they had been passed in the, in the years after the Holocaust in order to prevent uh, a repetition of the Holocaust, uh, that people should not... Ha- have a right to deny this because if you do that you will diminish uh, the horror and then you will uh, risk uh, repetition but no i mean they were they were the, the vast majority of them were passed after 1989 um, uh, i mean i could accept a holocaust denial law if somebody could prove to me and make the case that uh, it would equal uh, incitement to violence, uh, to um, not to ban uh, Holocaust denial, but but I I I just don't think uh, uh, that's the case. I don't think there is a threat in Europe um, of a repetition of, uh, of of the Holocaust, and I don't think the right way to uh, to fight it is uh, through banning uh, these point of views, especially in a situation where we have so many. Muslim immigrants in Europe who are in, are in fact Holocaust deniers. So if you if you ban if you ban these opinions, uh, you will not be able to confront them in public. Uh, you will not be able to have them air these uh, outrageous uh, opinions and and educate them and challenge them and uh, uh, have them to make their case to the public. They will just uh, keep silent, but they will not uh, change their point of view. Um, <clears throat> So, so, uh, but, 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 um, uh, 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 Holocaust denial laws. I mean, the first one were were passed in 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 Germany and in I think in Austria and later on in other countries. And and 
it was done out of uh, what of uh, a benign intention you you wanted to protect the victims of a genocide uh, and their sensibilities and 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 you know i'm that's uh, in in terms of humanity it's uh, it's uh, it's it's fine but but the fact of the matter is that it have Disastrous consequences for free speech, and it will not achieve its uh, its its aim. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask you a follow-up question connected to this. So, the current. If I, I, just, I just have one sure. other, other point because I just mm-hmm. wanted to make the point about. I, sure. I just forgot uh, my point. No, uh, you know, it started with uh, uh, Holocaust denial laws, and uh, after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, former communist countries have started to uh, pass laws criminalizing denial of the crimes of communism. You also now have a law criminalizing denial of the Armenian Holocaust. You had that in France. Uh, the Turks have uh, passed a counter law protect- protecting the uh, Turkish nation against criticism. Uh, in, um, in, uh, in Ukraine, you, the, the new authorities now want to pass a law criminalizing denial of the famine in the 30s uh, as a genocide. Uh, Latvia has passed a law, a, a small republic, um, a small republic in the Bal- uh, uh, at the Baltic Sea. They have passed a law criminalizing denial of the fact that Latvia was occupied between 1940 and 1990. And just recently, this spring, uh, Russia the Russian parliament passed a law also referring to the Nuremberg trial as in fact these Holocaust denial law, uh, laws do, um, uh, saying that uh, it, is, it is a criminal offense to criticize the behavior of the Soviet Union during the Second World War. So you can, you can, you can see the logic. Uh, what, what started maybe as something benign uh, it's log- the logical consequence of this was the law that Russia passed uh, this uh, spring. You are not allowed to criticize uh, uh, the Soviet Union's uh, actions during the Second World War, which means that my good friend Antony Beaver, a British historian who wrote a book about the fall of Berlin in 1945 and uh, the rape of uh, German women by Soviet soldiers, uh, um, doesn't want to go to Russia anymore because he's afraid of, uh, you know, getting into trouble. Uh, so, so you have this principle, you know, if you respect my taboo, I respect yours. If it's okay to uh, ban uh, denial of the Holocaust, it should also be uh, okay to ban denial of the crimes of communism. And if that's okay, it should also, it's also okay to ban what is sensitive to Russia, the victory in the Second World War, and therefore you should not be allowed to criticize the behavior of the Soviet Union. And if that's the case, uh, if, if we ban what, is, what could be sensitive, uh, if we ban cri- uh, critical words uh, that could be sensitive to uh, Jews, then we would also have to ban what might be perceived as offensive to Muslims and Christians and Buddhists and, 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 and atheists, which if we want to be consistent and not only protect believers, we also have to protect non-believers. Uh, uh, it should be a criminal offense to criticize Ayn Rand or, uh, or John Stuart Mill or uh, Karl Marx 
or Milton Friedman, depending on uh, on on uh, on the ideology or the ideas that you subscribe to, and and this is this will lead to a tyranny of silence, and 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 that's why I chose that title because that is a logical consequence of of the kind of logic that I saw many people pushing during the cartoon crisis without without understanding uh, the the consequences of what they thought you know would be a very humanistic and well-intentioned um, uh, uh, behavior I want to ask you looking back now it's, it's nine years or so maybe uh, since the publication of the cartoons what's your reflection on the climate in Europe now and what would you like to see what do you think might be some steps in the right direction um, I've, I think that it's very difficult to um, to criticize me and my newspaper for, you know, organizing an empty provocation or for uh, that this was, you know, just one case and why make a big deal of this uh, and so on and so forth. I mean, I think, you know, just the fact what we have been living through the past nine years with uh, heavy protection, uh, death threats, uh, intimidation, uh, aborted uh, terrorist uh, attacks and things like that. Uh, I think, uh, you know, every time these things happened, I mean, it confirms uh, our case. And, and, and some of these people do not understand how ironic it is when they say, you know, um, if you publish these cartoons, we are going to kill you. Uh, while uh, Kurt Westergaard's very famous cartoon of the Prophet Muhammad with a bomb in his turban exactly illustrate this kind of situation. Um, I think that uh, the situation has not, uh, has not gotten better. I mean, we have not seen maybe a lot of new laws, although there have been attempts. But on the other hand, uh, Europe is getting more and more multicultural and more and more multi-ethnic. So I think we see more self-censorship. I mean, um, uh, newspapers in Denmark and across Europe, they do not publish cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad anymore because they are afraid. Um, and uh, within the European Union, <clears throat> especially Germany, has been driving an attempt to, to, um, uh, to impose on every member state of the European Union the kind of hate speech laws you have in Germany. And they are very severe because of their history. Um, so, so they have been able to pass um, uh, a document in the Europe, within the European Union calling on every government in the EU to pass laws that criminalize uh, Holocaust denial. Denmark did not do that uh, because we said, you know, we, all, we have a law against hate speech at that, and that's uh, suffice. Um, but many of the new member states uh, in the East and uh, former member states, uh, long-time member states in the South, have passed these laws. Uh, and, and there is this growing trend that in order to save the, ha the social harmony in a Europe that is getting more and more multicultural, we have to shut up. We have to be more careful about what we say. Um, and I think that is, um, I think that is a, a challenge for a liberal democracy. 
um, which is founded on these fundamental liberties, you know, freedom of religion, freedom of speech. Um, and and um, uh, I, I think Europe has not found, you know, the right way to to handle this growing diversity. And I think we can learn something from the U.S., although I know there are many things to be critical, uh, especially when it comes to political correctness and speech codes and campuses and things like that. But I think if you look at the First Amendment uh, to the uh, U.S. Constitution and its interpretation throughout the 20th century, uh, from you know the famous case when Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, um, wrote this decision, you are not allowed to call, to shout uh, fire in a crowded theater uh, without a reason, which was applied to people who didn't want to uh, go into the draft during, uh, accept the draft during the First World War. Uh, and there were many limitations on speech in, in the first half of the 20th century in the U.S., uh, also referring to the First Amendment, uh, or undermining, in fact, the First Amendment. But throughout the 20th century, uh, the interpretation of the First Amendment has gotten wider and wider and wider. So that today... It's 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 you are you are not you are only allowed to uh, take people to court for something they say if it is in fact implying uh, incitement to violence and 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 that and and it should be the case that the violence is about to follow what you are saying. It's not just that you are saying something that may be you know perceived as incitement to violence. If there is no risk that violence will follow uh, words um, and uh, um, and and uh, even though uh, in America you have been allowed to say more and more and there are wider and wider uh, limits uh, uh, wider and wider um, limits to uh, speech uh, the United States has uh, throughout the 20th century um, been less and less racist and that is usually the key argument uh, for hate speech laws in order to protect minorities against uh, these kind of uh, verbal attacks. Uh, so, so I think the United States is a, <coughs> is a, I think it's a very, it's a very good example uh, to show the Europeans who want to uh, keep these hate speech laws that in fact you can't fight racism and you now have a black president, you had a black secretary of state, both female and male, you have interracial marriages, um, you have, um, you know, a black middle class uh, that is uh, developing. Uh, so so uh, you, 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 you can have uh, more and more free speech without that, uh, without that implying that uh, you are getting a more and more biased and uh, racist society. In fact, quite the opposite in the, state, in the case of the United States of America. So I think we could, we could learn from your experience, but we shouldn't learn from, uh, from, from the way this is uh, being handled on campuses where political correctness and speech codes and now these trigger warnings that you have on campuses where teachers, teachers uh, are obliged to tell students if they're are material in what they are going to uh, teach that may be perceived as offensive. Uh, yeah. So I was going to add to this. So 
One of the issues I've seen arise here is this, and you talk about this in your book in the European context, is the idea of Islamophobia, and I put that in scare quotes, because yeah. it's it's it strikes me that that's a, a blending of things that are very different and have to be kept apart, which is, on the one hand, religion, which is something that people, it, it's, it's ideas, it's something people have to accept by choice, even if they're mm-hmm. born into a certain context. And then, on the other hand, race, which is something biological and unchosen. And what I've seen, and in, in there are many cases lately, is because that is blended, any attack, which I think is necessary, or critique, which is justified, on an idea that you disagree with is interpreted as an attack on a race, which I think completely muddles the issue and, Absolutely. A- and undermines freedom of speech. Yes, yes. And that's exactly what Ben Affleck did in this uh, interview with Bill Mayer and uh, Sam Harris. Uh, he, he, he labeled what Harris was saying about Islam as uh, racism, and, and uh, it, has, it has nothing to do with racism. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that, and I think I I I I I, I, f- I think you're absolutely right. And I, the 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 concept of Islamophobia uh, is also problematic because it conflates, you know, legitimate criticism uh, of a set of ideas with what people believe as discrimination of a group in society. Um, and I find it very strange to label that, you know, some kind of sickness. Phobia is uh, a disease. Um, uh, so I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's, it's, um, it's a very misleading concept that we should try to avoid uh, talking about these issues. Because I, I, will, not re- I will not deny that, that uh, you know, uh, 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 in Europe discrimination is taking place when it comes to uh, um, people with with a Muslim background in uh, in in European societies, but we should fight that as we fight uh, every other kind of uh, of uh, discrimination. And and for instance, my wife who has this Russian background, for many years it was very difficult for her to get a job because uh, of her ethnic uh, background. Uh, so so uh, it's not just about Muslims. It's it's about uh, what I would say, you know, monocultural mono societies who now have to adapt to a more diverse society, and and it's a learning process, and uh, and uh, we have to watch out for these kind of problems. Well, Fleming, we're almost at the end of our time. Um, the other reflections you would want to add as context for the, our audience here in the U.S. No, I think you put your. Th- I mean, I mean, some of the criticism that was directed against uh, me in the U.S. Uh, during this crisis was exactly about this. Um, I think misleading conflation of race and uh, religion and ideas. And I think it's you know um, to to equate uh, uh, religious affiliation with race is also very problematic when it comes to Islam. Because um, one of the key notions in Islam is that you are born a Muslim. And if you want to leave your faith, uh, um, uh, you can be killed. I mean, it's equ- it equals a death sentence. Uh, so so if, you, uh, if, you, if, you, if you start to uh, equate race and 
religious affiliation, you will play into the hands of those who, in fact, are killing and uh, and and uh, persecuting uh, individuals who want to say goodbye to Islam. And it's a very, very fundamental right. I mean, you don't have a right to freedom of religion if you don't have the right to say no to religion. Uh, and I don't think they, they understand, you know, the... Um, the the not so pleasant consequences of making these kind of um, of uh, propositions. Well, thank you for your time. I wanted to add my own thoughts just on this one narrow point, which is I I, I read your book. It increased my appreciation for freedom of speech, both as a an ideal that we should defend, and also an understanding of the threats that are uh, arrayed against it. I noticed uh, just the other day that your book was picked as uh, one of the best of 2014 by The Economist magazine, and I wanted to congratulate you and thank, thank you for you. writing it. Um, I, I can only imagine what this has meant for you personally uh, in your life, and I salute you for your bravery. Thank you, Ilan. It's been a pleasure to be with you, uh, and thank you for having read the book and uh, for asking me so good questions. Great. I encourage our listeners to pick up a copy. It deserves to be widely read and discussed and thought about. It's an important topic. Thanks again. Thank you.